Beyond the Wrench with Jay Ganinen from Wrenchway. Welcome back to Beyond the Wrench. My name is Jay Ganinen and I am your host. Today I am joined by Beth Rudder. Beth Rudder is a independent consultant who's done a lot of work with ASC in the development of an apprenticeship program. Just a really, really smart individual, lots of experience in the collision industry, and a lot of just really good insight to help all of you that are out there in your shops being able to understand how you not only get more talent in the doors, but how you keep them. She has some excellent insight and is an incredibly smart person. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our podcast sponsor for this week, and that is Truck Country. Truck Country and Stoops Freightliner are the largest Freightliner dealer group in the U.S. today, serving customers at locations in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. For nearly 60 years, they've offered new and used medium and heavy-duty trucks, expert service, an extensive parts inventory, and more. If you'd like to learn more about Truck Country or potentially some of the careers that they've got, they are a really good partner of ours. You can head out to our Wrenchway site and see their dealers out there, or you can go to truckcountry.com, learn more about them, and see what opportunities they have available. As for this week's episode, I think you're really going to enjoy it and just a lot of really, really good insight that I think will be impactful for all of you. Have a great week. On this week's episode, I'm incredibly excited to welcome Beth Rudder to the show. As you'll find out as we go through this podcast, Beth brings a wealth of knowledge and I think is going to blow a lot of people away. So welcome to the show, Beth. How are you doing today? I'm doing spectacular, right? It's a great day to be alive. Spectacular in California? Yes, I'm currently in California. Just got back from Orlando and previous to that, I was in Canada. All right. All right. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Your story is fascinating. How you got to this point in your life is fascinating. There's just a a lot of really cool things about your story. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I appreciate the fascinating piece of it. I don't know if it's that fascinating. I think it is. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's long for sure. So I, I started out in the collision industry back when P pages were actually in a book and you wrote handwritten estimates on the back of a napkin and then you went into a DOS operated program and entered line by line into this thing called Mitchell, which was was fairly new back in the day. Right. And, you know, I have played a role in just about every aspect of collision repair since then. I've managed shops for Caliber Collision. I was a regional manager for them for several years. I've worked for Assured Performance on their certification side. I've worked as a jobber selling paint and body filler, you know, into the industry. And one thing I learned about myself in that particular gig is that I'm real process oriented. And safety comes first. And and once you've been in the industry and you've you've seen how hard it is to repair vehicles, I don't know anybody who doesn't go into the back of a shop and see something wrong and try to sell paint to somebody who just told them, hey, you can't deliver the car like that. <laughs> so that was not my most successful gig. But you know, I'm I'm consulting now and I'm a, a keynote speaker as well. I've done that in the past. Now on the automotive side, building a mentorship program for the ASE Education Foundation who are over the top dedicated and passionate about connecting 
technicians to shops in a way that makes sense, right? And and keeping them once we get them, which is another issue we have. A pretty big barrier. And I think you echo George in talking about that. There's not actually a technician shortage, right? No, no, there isn't. You know, there's Google, I, and we've spoken of this before, Google gets more than 2 million applicants a year. It's harder to get a job at Google than it is to get into Harvard Medical School. And why is that? right? Why is that? It's because it's a great place to work, right? There's lots of benefits. You can get mentorship on anything from coding to yoga, and it's all free, right? You can, you can talk with leadership once a week, live, and you can ask them anything about the company and they'll answer you. And, you know, we, we tend to miss that piece. You know, we're desperate to get people, but we're not all that desperate to look inside and say, okay, how can we be better? How can we, how can we attract them? How can we be a magnet for technicians as opposed to how can we grab anybody who can fog a mirror? Because that's currently the, the typical process we're on. It, it is. And I, I think when you look at it, and I think this all lends itself to your experience, right? And there were a few things that when we had talked previously that stuck out to me as you you just basically saying, well, shops in some ways maybe aren't trying hard enough, or maybe there's there's some simple things we can fix as an industry that make this a really desirable place to come work. And I you, you brought up the Google piece and how hard it is to go work there and the perception that it is a hard place to get in to go work. I don't think we have that in our industry right now, right? It's because everybody's hiring and it's a, it's, you know, I think in a lot of cases, shops come from an area of desperation when they're trying to find these people. And that's why they end up with the the person that can simply fog the mirror, right? Right. And, you know, it, it's kind of a cyclical issue, right? Because the best shops, they're not desperate. They have people lined up the door. They have their technicians saying, hey, I got a guy. You have to talk to this guy. And they have no place for them, but they they talk to them and they, they say, look, you know, we, we're going to have a place for you. I know a shop up in the Bay Area who bought a Greenfield brand new shop is never before in this area because he hired a manager that's in his 30s, but he already had a manager in his 30s, right? And they're both basically doing exactly the same job. And he says, I'm not going to lose one. I'm not going to lose either of them. I'm building a new shop so that this guy has a place to go. He says, I'll figure out how to fill it later. And, you know, that's the type of mentality that drives technicians and droves to this one place. And there's, there's lots of shops out there who do it that way, but we only hear about, you know, the 95% of the other shops who aren't doing it that way. And, you know, you mentioned that it's, there's, there's simple things we can do. And that's true. They are simple, but they're not easy, right? (laughs) It's hard work, but it's a, it's a dedication. We tend to focus more on, on how to repair the vehicle than to how to really pour into the people doing the work. And we're comfortable with the, the the non-touchy feely kind of, you know, nobody, nobody asks the rich how it feels about coming to work today, <laughs> right? But people are a little messier. They're harder to deal with. And then we have social media telling, telling us that Gen Z and millennials are, are this type of person or that type of person. And so we, we, we shut ourselves down before we even try to do better. 
And, and I think I, that's one of the issues. Yeah, I think this as an industry, we're very guilty of this, of lumping all technicians. I've said this in, in other podcasts that we've done where it feels like we try to lump everybody into this one group and that we think that they're all the same person or that they're all the same type of person. When in reality, if you if you take a step back and look at them, they have different interests. They are real people. Believe it or not, they're real what? people. <laughs> 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 yeah, it, it, well, it's and I think that is a really nice segue into the leadership side of, of our conversation today, because I think that's where we fall short in so many different aspects of our industry is it takes good leadership to be able to understand that. And the fact that that individual that you're talking about in the Bay Area had had the forethought to be able to bring on two different managers that are you know very similar but had an idea of where to put them at. He was trying to find good people and, and, and then he makes them fit in. And, and I, I don't know, I, I don't see that enough. And I think that comes from that person probably being just one heck of a good leader. Well, that's absolutely the case. I mean, he, he really had no intention of growing his business. He's had a single operation up in the Bay Area that's been very successful. It's not huge, but it's, it's a good size a shop that's been successful for 30 years. He had no intentions of growing it because everything was good and, and awesome. But then this, you know, superstar showed up on his doorstep and he's like, okay, what kind of, what kind of leader am I that can't find a place for a superstar who wants to work here? Right. So you're right. Absolutely. There's a difference between being a boss and being a leader, but let's look at how individuals typically come up in our industry right? They're, they typically started out in a shop. Nobody falls on top of the mountain, right? They started at the bottom as a detailer, and then they moved up to maybe a porter, or maybe it was vice versa. I don't know, you know, but they worked their way through the shop until eventually the owner aged out and said, I got to sell my business to somebody and you look like the right person. And so they bought it. So they, they have all this experience fixing the vehicles, but they have no experience in managing the people. And sometimes they're lucky. Sometimes they just happen to be natural born leaders, but there's very few of those. It, it's a skill set that needs to be learned that we don't typically teach in the collision repair industry. We teach how to fix cars. Everybody's got to do iCar training, but nobody has to do leadership training. Right. And, and how do you how do you repair a vehicle without a human on the other side of that that impact wrench or impact? Right. You know, I just I just outed myself for my lack of knowledge as it relates to cars. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the really funny things in in conversation with you that that came out. You're not the, the typical car lover like you just really like working on businesses. And I think having that outside perspective helps you see things in a different light than maybe those of us that have been in and, and grew up in that shop environment where, you know, I think maybe some of the stuff isn't as clear to us as it is to you because you're bringing a different perspective and you're looking at it and you're trying to fix processes. You're trying to fix people. And I think that that's, that's a pretty big task in general, but I, I think it's sorely needed in our industry as a whole. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say it's, it's big. And from my perspective, what, what repairs do every single day, the technicians in the back, that's, that's magic stuff that goes on back there because, you know, they, they think in a different way. Our technicians are not linear visual thinkers. They're kinesthetic thinkers. They all think with their hands and it's all in 3D in their head. Words in, 
when when I listen or think about something, it all comes across as words in my head, but not for technicians. They think in the actual physical bits of the car. They blow it out in their head schematically. They rotate it and, and twirl it just like it's on a rotisserie. And then they can tell you exactly how to put a vehicle back together. That to me is far more sophisticated than what I do. I'm I'm a process person. I sit back and I look and I say, okay, so where's the bottleneck and how do we fix that thing? And what I found in, in my experience with managing shops is 98% of the time, it's a process issue. It's not a people issue. And we tend, tend not to look at the things that we can fix. We like to beat up people instead. Hey, why are you, why are you being such a jerk today? Right? It's obviously your fault that you've shown up this way. And sometimes that's the case. But most of the time, it's this individual has had to, to perform work arounds for their particular job every single time they have to do it. And it gets old after a while, especially when the estimator com- comes back and says, hey, you don't mind doing this for free, right? Because they don't pay for that. How often do we hear about that? Well, our technicians hear about it all of the time and they have families to feed, right? And every time an, an outside influence impacts their ability to take care of their families, they get kind of grumpy, <laughs> right? So you fix the processes and all of a sudden, a lot of your problem employees are no longer problem employees. And I'm not saying it's 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 that easy, but it is that simple. It really is. And, and a lot of the times we know how to fix the process of the vehicle, but we don't know how to fix the process of the car. And that's comes full circle back to the, okay, so how many of our industry leaders have actually picked up a book on HR management, right? How to, how to manage their human resources. Have they, have they done any leadership training themselves? Do they have a mentor? Do they have somebody telling them, Hey, this is what you need to do. This is your blind spot. Probably not. Right. Right. So do you think the mentality is still there of I learned it the hard way, you're going to learn it the hard way, and and maybe that's where some of this falls short? Because it, I know growing up in a shop, that was one of the things I came across was, you know, I didn't, you know, when I was looking at older mentors or older people in the shop, they're like, you know what? screw it up, do it, you know, like just, we had to learn the hard way. You're going to have to learn the hard way as well. And it wasn't very conducive to learning. It was very much like go fail and then figure out how to fix it. And then come ask me a question if there, if there's anything that, that you need. Right. And it was somewhat intimidating from a technician standpoint, because you're like, okay, like if I screw up and I plug in this wrong controller and it blows it up, I just, you know, cost the shop a thousand bucks. And as a young technician, you're terrified of that. Like you, it, I think it's ingrained in our heads and in, in the tech schools and in the classes that that's the last thing you want to do. And and so when you're like, okay, I, I'm going to toy around with this, but if I screw it up, I'm going to get in trouble. And, and so it just puts you in this weird spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's really cool about what you just said is you just defined what mentorship is, except with the condition of mindset, right? Because we all start, and to your point at the beginning, yeah, we, we do have a, a tendency to say, hey, look, it, I had to do it the hard way. It was real painful for me. It scared me, you know, and, and it was real painful until I got it. So you have to do the same. Mentorship isn't that far off with just a, a different mindset. Instead of 
you're going to have to fail and it's going to have to be painful. Mentorship is you have to fail, but I'm here to show you what I did wrong. And if you're willing to listen, because that's the other key piece to mentorship, right? Is actually listening to the advice you get. (laughs) If you listen, you don't have to make all the mistakes that I made and you can actually be better faster. That mindset is missing. But the cool thing about, you know, I, I don't think it's as systemic as it used to be. Coronavirus is a blessing to us in the closure repair industry. It really clarified a lot of our positions and showed a lot of them for the garbage they are, right? And a lot of shops, and I'm not just talking a, a tiny few, I would say more than half of the shops I've spoken with since coronavirus have a different attitude. They have a different way of looking at business. All of a sudden, everybody knows somebody who lost someone. I, I, I visited shops who lost technicians to COVID. Family, random family members passed. Not everybody, just one random young person passed. And it, it's changed everyone's outlook on, on life and work balance. And, and of course, we've got the whole weird political thing going on in the background to that. And it freaked people out. And the best way to get people moving honestly, is when they're already moving. And we had COVID was the rug that got yarded out from under our feet, right? So we can look at it as this this horrible thing. And for a lot of people, it, it was truly horrible, but we've transitioned past that. And we have the ability to look at our, our way of doing business in a whole different way. And that's what's really cool in this post-COVID, well, almost post-COVID, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully post-COVID, right? That's that's the key thing is that people are willing to look and leaders are looking at different ways because all of a sudden, how do you teach someone how to weld online, right? How do you do that? You can't. So all of a sudden, we, we clarified what was critical to the business onboarding process and not critical, right? And now all of a sudden, we don't have the luxury of beating people up and chewing them up and spitting them out and sending them on their way. We don't have that luxury, right? So the the leaders of our industry are saying, how can we be different? And all of a sudden, there's I've seen a, a surge, especially in my own business. Okay, come show us what we can do to be better and onboard technicians. I don't even care if they've ever held a wrench before. I want them to be good humans while they're here. And it's a completely different mindset, which is, from my perspective, very, very exciting. Yeah, I I think that's something that a lot of the industry has craved for a long time is one, we always hear that we want to pull better people into the industry and and even not to, to slight the people that are in the industry right now, because there's many, many super talented people in this industry that can do a lot of things that I can't. But when we when we talk about having that pull type of strategy to where you know we're not we're not trying to sell something that maybe we it's not which i think in some cases is what we do when we go to these schools and talk to kids about what our industry is and and maybe at some level i think we do glorify it maybe a little bit more than what it is and when they get in there they're disappointed and maybe don't see it the same but doing those types of things where there's a, a structured mentorship program, there's a structured onboarding program like that, you, you, you're running a professional business rather than just, you know, thinking that your, you know, your sole job is to fix cars. 
if, if you can maybe change or shift and adapt to being a professional and having, having some level of clarity in, in something like a mentorship program, it's so important because I think the outside world sees that too and how you are portrayed to them. And so when you're doing that, I think you just represent the industry in a far more professional way. And then maybe that parent that's looking at their kid and saying in the past, Hey, I'm not, I'm not sending them to the collision industry. I mean, I don't want them to go sand all day. Like we, we need to, we need to do something different. Yeah. They might look at that in a little bit of a different light. Well, and you know, we have a lot of work to do in that regard because, you know, who we were as an industry 50 years ago is not who we were 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago, right? Times have changed. But the mentality of the people looking into the industry has not changed. It's, you know, it's lagging in some regard. I mean, you look at all of the Godfather movies and, you know, somebody, you know, in the mafia always has a place to launder money. And where was it? It was a body shop. <laughs> right? So those kids' parents, the ones who are really keen to get into, into the industry, and and I don't I don't know if it can be oversold our industry. It is so cool, the technology and the and the the learning, right? You don't just you just learn one thing and then call it good and you're good for the, the next 40 years of your life. You learn it today and be prepared to, to figure out something cooler even more so next year or even six months from now. Because, you know, model years change halfway through the year quite often in their construction. And, you know, the, the technology, especially with ADAS and, and all of those related components, there's a huge technical need for students who don't just think of repairing vehicles as, you know, as the Aussies call them, panel beaters, right? We just don't do that anymore. Nobody repairs a vehicle by pounding on a panel anymore, right? It's a completely different process. It's so much more intellectual. And the part of the problem is this whole kinesthetic versus visual and auditory learning. You know, when, when I went to school, certainly the schools were set up for visual learners. They weren't set up for kinesthetic learners. So much so that by the time those kinesthetic learners got to, you know, grade 12, they pretty much knew that they weren't that bright. And every student I've ever spoken with, you know, when I asked them, what, you, what why are you in the industry? Why did you decide to go to school and learn collision repair? It's because I love to work with my hands. And the other side of that is because I'm not that bright. And that kills me because some of the most intelligent people I have ever met are technicians. And by far, more technicians have that, that stellar perspective on problem solving and approach to the world. It's just different than visual learners, right? But only 5% of the population are kinesthetic learners. 95% of our technicians are kinesthetic learners. So it's a double whammy. It's not that we're just looking for people and they're not out there. They just don't think like us. So we've got to attract the visual learners and, and, and now kind of de- or retune them, right, to think in terms of kinesthetic processes, right? Because for visual learners, we've been, it's been an easy ride for us. Schools are set up for us. The world is set up for us. I mean, how often do you get an email about how to do something? Or look at Ikea. Jeez. You can see the kinesthetic learners 
they don't look at all the instructions. They lay it all out. It's like, yeah, I can put this all together. <laughs> and then there's me, right? What is this? <laughs> Where does this go? <laughs> I've got pieces left over. But I think the fact that we're having this conversation is so refreshing to me because you're right. I think I was in that in that realm coming through school where I didn't have any interest in school or learning that way. But I did love when somebody showed me something or somebody would really take me aside and be able to, to really walk through it with me. And then I would understand it. Then it, then it stuck. But if it was a teacher talking at me, I had a really tough time being able to sit and, and a lot of times, and I think this is maybe part of the technician mentality a little bit too, is I always questioned why I was learning it, right? So I would sit down and like, well, why, why do I need to know about this? And, and so then I would tune out and it was, it was bad for my grades. I know that, <laughs> but, but it, it was, I think everything that you're saying is, is refreshing to me because I think that could open the door to us for a lot of things it, when we get a core understanding of how people learn. Right. And it, it's not a, an abdication of the process. It, you know, you can use it as uh, baggage, you know, your experience in school, you can use it as emotional baggage. You can drag it around behind you and beat yourself up for never being as good as you should have been. Or you can use that learning that you got having suffered through school as a kinesthetic learner and you can use it as a resource that can actually benefit other people. You know, I didn't really understand the difference between the two learning styles until I had kids, right? And both of my boys are highly kinesthetic. The youngest is hell on wheels, right? And he was so off the charts kinesthetic that, you know, I, I got all sorts of advice from the schools to maybe have him tested, you know, for whatever thing or what, what have you. And of course, right. I refuse that because I recognize by that time, he just learns differently. Right. And at one point I had to say, well, look, buddy, it sucks to be you. The schools aren't designed for you. That doesn't mean to say that you can pitch a fit every time you have to do something you don't want to do. Right. So this is the world you are in. Get over it. You yeah. have to do it. You have to go to school. I get arrested if you don't go to school and I'm not getting arrested. So this is how it's going to go. You have to learn it. And I, I, turns out he's an entrepreneur. I ended up paying him for his grades, two bucks for an A plus a buck for an A. And once he started earning the money, it was game over. I started <laughs> having to squirrel away the money so that he could, <laughs> I could pay him out every week. But that's, that's the whole leadership thing that you talked about earlier. Right. We're, we're not sure or we'd like to just lump everybody in as employees. Here are my employees and here's how I'm going to deal with my employees. But it doesn't work that way. We have to recognize they're different. My my eldest son was not motivated by money. Not at all. He wanted the warm, fuzzy recognition for being a good guy. The youngest one, he's still he's you know, he's tried university. It's not for him. So he taught himself how to day trade. Wow. And, you know, so, yes, that to me is freakishly crazy, but it works for him. <laughs> I, but I mean, being able to understand that, then if you're taking that into, okay, this is how they learn. You put it in a shop setting and you start to understand that people are different. They're going to learn differently. And the majority of our demographic as it pertains to technicians and and 
in general, I think people that work with their hands, I think when you start to understand that, then you're looking at building a mentorship program. Then you're figuring out, okay, you bring this person in. We have an idea of how they're learning. Now we're going to put some structure behind how we're going to teach them. One of the things we do at Wrenchway is help technicians find great places to work. If you think your shop is a top shop, we want to hear from you. Wrenchway Top Shop pages are like resumes for shops. They share all the details technicians want to know about before they apply, such as compensation ranges for all levels, photos and videos of the service area, videos of technicians and managers, and frequently asked questions on work environment, career development, and hiring process. Attract more technicians to your shop by becoming a Wrenchway Top Shop. Visit wrenchway.com to contact us and learn more. Link is in the show notes. What advice do you have in regard to really building that mentorship piece? So taking it from the level of understanding who they are to once you get them in the doors, this is the program we're going to put them through and, and really doing it to, in their best interest, have the, the have them be successful. But in the, the interest of the business, you want them to be a productive piece of that business for a long time, hopefully. So how, how does that transition work and how do, how do you pull them into you? You're pretty confident that you're going to have a pretty good employee. Well, the first thing is a mindset shift. First of all, first and foremost, if I'm speaking to you, a business owner, it's not about you. That's the first piece of advice. Building a mentorship program and building a high performance team is not about you. It's about your people. You don't have to know absolutely everything. You don't need to know every step of the way in order to start. You need to be able and willing to invest the time and energy to show up for the people who are actually doing the work. That's why I was successful as a body shop manager. I never owned my own shop, but I managed several. And the reason I was successful at it was because I didn't need to know the whole process. In fact, I knew very little about the process, but I knew about the people. And I knew that they knew what they were doing. I didn't need to know what they need to know. They needed to know what they needed to know. And, and, you know, as it relates back to my youngest son, who I paid for his grades, and I said, look, buddy, it's up to you. You have to do it, and I'm not going to jail. They have to be as invested in being part of a successful team as you are. So as the leader, you can't go in and say, guess what? Yesterday we sucked. Today we're a high-performance team. It's got to be built, right? And there's empowerment that goes it goes along with it, right? You've got to empower your team to be successful. You can't micromanage people into a high, high performance team. It doesn't work that way. So it's a, it's a different mindset. Quite often our leaders are, I've got to know everything and I've got to do it myself and I've got to show them the way. Well, you don't necessarily know the way. They do. They absolutely do. You sit your team down and you say, okay, what's working? What's not working? They'll tell you. And if they don't tell you, you got a communication issue, in which case, you know, your first place to start, right? So all of the information is there. None of this is rocket science. None of this is woo-woo magic kind of stuff that's only, you know, for, for me, I, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology, right? It happens to be how people work together in organizations. So yeah, maybe I do have a tiny leg up, but the people working in the business are the ones who know what needs to happen. Right. I never once went into a, a shop and I managed several. I never once went in and said, OK, so this is what's going to happen. It was like, OK, 
we're, we're going to change some stuff. I don't know what yet, but, you know, we're going to change some stuff. We're going to make some money. Right. And when it comes down to it, you've got to do the work first. You've got to invest in the people first before they're willing to trust you. Because quite often we beat them up so badly that they just want to come to work, do good enough to get by and just get the hell out of Dodge. Right. How, how important is it to sit back and, and just look at things for a while before you make changes? And the reason I ask that, I, I remember as a young man, I think I took over, I was at a dealership and I had basically, I think, 130-ish employees under me when I was 30 years old, came from a technical background. And one of my biggest errors looking back over my career was that I came in and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm going to change this stuff and this, this doesn't seem right. And, you know, I was so, so active. And I think some of it was there was pressure to perform right away, right? You, you take a higher level position and you're, you know, you're, you're held accountable to results. And so you want to hit the ground running. And when I look back at my experience going into that, one of the the biggest errors I feel like I made was that I didn't sit back and analyze stuff and and really view how things were happening prior to trying to enforce change, right? And I think I see that a lot in our industry in general, but looking at my own experience, that was one of my biggest flaws or the one of the biggest things that I screwed up when I first went in because, you know, you go in guns a-blazing and trying to, to change stuff, but not having a firm understanding of the way things operate first before maybe trying to make those tweaks, I think was, uh, was something that I, I did poorly in my, my first step into to real management. So that's, you know, thank you for being authentic and real and transparent, but honestly, that was just an opportunity for growth, right? That you may or may not have mastered by the time you transitioned on to your next role, but it's still a, piece of learning that you took with you, right? And so going back to what I was talking about, the very first thing that needs to happen when you're looking at change is the mindset shift. And you were in a a boss mindset where I'm going to tell people what to do and they're going to achieve it and then we're going to be successful. And it's got to be flipped the other way because the people already know what needs to happen right? They're doing the work every single day. And that's not to say that there aren't going to be resistors. And I affectionately call them terrorists who undermine absolutely everything you're trying to do simply because they're so afraid of change or what there could be any number of issues. But honestly, those people are definitely a management issue and, and require special care and attention to either iron out the issues that they're having or the processes that are causing them grief or they need to transition on to their next best. But you know, the whole process of sitting back and, and analyzing in our industry takes time. We don't necessarily have time. The people are suffering right now. If you've come into a position and, or maybe you've been there a while, you know which people are your, your tough nuts to crack. You, and they're, they're suffering now. They don't, they don't bring their suffering in, right? It's happening in, in the collision repair shop, in that business right there and then. You need to ask. You know, being a servant leader is the best possible way to start something right now. 
I've been in shops where the bathrooms at the back don't work and the technicians aren't allowed to use the ones in the front because that's where the customers go. Well, is there a possible reason maybe why they're never at their stall, right? So sit and ask and be open and try stuff, right? You know, your, your point about, well, I tried a whole bunch of stuff and it didn't work and I didn't want to do that. And it was really scary. Well, it's like that way for leaders too. Well, I'm not going to try that. Maybe it'll tank the whole business. But when everybody works together, all of a sudden, every, everybody's got each other's back. Nobody's sitting back waiting for you to fail. Because guess what? When the, when the team fails, they don't, they don't fire the team. They fire the coach right? Because the coach is the one directing the whole process. The quarterback knows what he's supposed to do, right? And he's not trying to do the lineman's job, right? Nobody gets confused about their role on offense or defense. The team knows what they're supposed to do. The coach doesn't go and run out there and show them which way to run and how to throw the ball, right? He has his people come in and and fine tunes that process. And he, 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 he brings up the people's natural talent. That's why they're there. We've got people in the collision repair industry right now with a natural talent to do what they do. That's unlike anybody else on the planet, right? Ask them. That's the best place to start. I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't wait to sit back and analyze, but you know, your point of not leaping in and just saying, change this, this, and this is very valid. What I, what I love about what you just said there was your approach to getting buy-in and and getting it's it getting people to operate together, and I think that was one of my strengths was being able to get people to to collaborate or feel like they were a part of the change, right? And I think when you do that, it's far less likely that you're going to have more of those terrorists, right? You're going to hopefully get them to buy in. So I think I think that's just it's such a big piece that I wanted to pull out of that. Because when we go back and we talk about mentorship or we talk about any of this other stuff, it's not – I've talked to a lot of technicians and, and they, they've talked about mentorship programs. And and I have my own experience where I had taken this the same position and that they had told me, hey, we've got this great mentorship program. And so I went out and talked to one of the techs that was the mentor. And I said, hey, you're – see you're the, the I heard that you're the mentor for Jimmy and and just wanted to ask you how that's going he's like what the hell are you talking about I'm like <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even know he was the mentor and so like somebody forgot to tell him <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty big one to miss and and so as we sat down and talked about it you know we talked through the capabilities of of the team and who was even willing to be a mentor and we talked about you know, what goes into that and, and what makes a good mentor. And I think it was so much more granular than what, you know, before it was like, ah, he's he's the mentor, send him that way. But being able to sit down and we talk about buy-in, you're getting buy-in from them because a point that you had said is they do it. They know what it's like out there and they know it better than I do. So why not use their brain power to be able to put together something and collaborate to make something that's really impactful and really great? And I think that's when it has the stickiness. That's when it when it really takes hold. Right. And it's super critical to empower people to be their best. Right. And, you know, in in 
several shops. The, the paint department was the big issue, right? The work got to it, but never came out of it. And at one particular shop I had, and I'm sure this has never happened to anyone else on the planet, a painter who everyone was terrified of, right? And, and this particular gentleman had a laundry list of excuses for why he couldn't produce a, a stellar paint job. And the guy was really talented, but I mean, his, his uh, matching was horrible. He had boogers all over the place. It was horrible, right? And it came down to just me. Not, not blaming anybody else saying, okay, what's the issue? What's the problem? Why isn't this a match? Well, he give me a couple of reasons. And that's as a, as a, as a leader, I dealt with every single one of those issues. He in that particular case, he was my terrorist because he undermined everybody's authority. And eventually we got to the end of all of his excuses. I, you know, changed all the filters in the booth. I gave him a new air system. I, you know, changed out some hoses. I cleaned the booth myself on a weekend because the, the tack had, had fallen off in some places. It was black and nasty, right? And came to the end of the excuses. And at one point I, I walked out and he's, he's sending a, a vehicle that had come to him that wasn't perfect. I said, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. This is now your place to go backwards and help your team bring you stuff that, you know, we can deliver with pride. You can't be doing other people's work because I'm now holding you accountable for your work. <laughs> so let's have a conversation. Now let's move it back a bit. And it came to the point where everybody, he, he became this awesome leader in the shop, coaching other people on how to deliver vehicles. He'd help them right? In times that he was slow, he'd help them show them exactly what he needed. So when it came to the shop, and I'm telling you, we were delivering, you know, $2,400, $3,000 jobs in two to three days. And it was a small shop, right? Really small shop. And I knew he had finally gotten it and inspired the rest of the team when on a Friday afternoon at like two o'clock in the afternoon, he was finished all of his work. And he was out with the detailer helping detail cars. And that's what it's all about. It wasn't about me being the leader and telling people what to do. It was empowering them to be the team they wanted because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, how can I piss people off today? How can I just screw up the whole process? How can I make it so that we send out vehicles that aren't safe today? I really want to do that. Let me think about it. Nobody wants that. People want to come to work and they want the business to provide an environment that they can be successful at and make money. I mean, honestly, people have lives to take care of. They have families, they have, you know, mortgages and cars and all sorts of good stuff that they want to spend money on that we're not allowing them to do because we've bottlenecked the whole process. We as leaders aren't willing to grow. Simple, in, but not easy. I, I, in that scenario, and I love that you say that, I, I, I think those are the most fun examples because you turn somebody and maybe 20 years ago when you could backfill that position really quickly to where now you can't. And sometimes you have to work around that. I think what you did in going out to the shop and even doing it over the weekend, they see that like they, they see that you're putting in the, the effort and that you actually care about them, that it's not just, Hey, go back, go in the back and do your thing. I don't want to hear it from you. And I, I, I know from, from a, leadership standpoint, it can be hard to hear that stuff 
over and over and over again. But as you, you, you made it kind of, it sounds like a goal to like, I'm just going to remove his list of excuses. And then that will, it, what it sounds like is that it opened up a conversation to where you could break it down and understand it at a greater level. And you fixed the core of the problem. You didn't try to dress up the rest of the stuff. You, you went straight to the problem and, and tried to, tried to really attack it. Well, and the key to that whole piece is that everybody has a role to play. I mean, I didn't want my painter sanding cars, right? I, I didn't want him doing that. I don't want my detailer painting cars, right? And I don't know how to weld. I've taken painting classes, you know, I'm certified at PPG. And so I could spray a car if I had to, but would I want to? And would anybody else want me to? We're not going to be profitable if I do that job. I was there. I have a certain skill set as the leader, and that's what I needed to do. It wasn't my job to learn everybody else's stuff and tell them what to do. It was to, they already knew what they needed to do, right? They were already so good at what they did. But when you beat people down long enough, gosh, all of a sudden, everybody's work starts to look like really a slog, right? And you end up beating people up every step of the way. But it, it it wasn't about me. It was about them. And, you know, by the time I, by the time I left that shop, we were just so profitable and the team was just so tight. They didn't need me. And how perfect is that? Right. Because then you have the opportunity to work on the business instead of in the business. Right. And one of the, one of the estimators who was never really all that keen on taking guidance from a female, one day his most scathing insult to me was that you're not a you're not a leader, you just do stuff for people. Right. <laughs> 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 uh, yep. I'm not sure we're ever gonna meet in the middle on this one. <laughs> so how how was that experience in general in being a female coming in and running a shop? not being the traditional car guy that, you know, I think is very common with collision shops, you were kind of outside the box. And when you come in, what barriers did you have when it came to, you know, earning the respect or even just being able to to have them listen to you? I mean, it feels like there's a lot of barriers there that you had to overcome and you did it successfully. I think there's a lot of even young ladies that are listening to this podcast right now. I talked to one a month or so ago that is running a body shop. She's a parts manager and she she had worked her way up and she talked to me about those challenges that she had to go through to get to that point. I'm curious with with your experience, how big of a barrier that was and, and really how you got around it or through it. Well, yeah. So it's a it's a big barrier. That's that's the first thing. But relative to what exactly, right? I, I had been hired as the manager. So there was that. And the fastest way to get people on your team is to get on theirs, right? And so the, the very first thing that I would tell teams that I was new with is, look, I don't care if you like me. I'm here to make us all more money. That's it. You know, I see some issues here. I see some opportunities for growth. But at the end of the day, I'm not successful unless you're successful. So that's my goal. And then that was it. That It was all servant leadership. I don't know how to repair vehicles, right? And one of the biggest struggles I see with male or female 
leadership is they, they feel they need to know it all, right? And that why bother having a team? Why bother having a welder at the back? Why bother having a guy who's really good on the frame machine? What's the point? If you have to know everything, what's the point? And when, when you overlap those jobs, it means you're kind of not doing your job, right? So yeah, there's, there's some barriers. There's some tough nuts to crack. The, without, without exception, every team that I stood in front of as the new leader, because at that point I hadn't gained any respect, was like, oh, great. What does she know? And I just needed to know my piece, right? And make sure that they were able to do their piece without impediment and respect, right? There was some, there was some issues over, over the years, but honestly, I ran into more issues with Mers wanting to talk to the man. (laughs) We know it can't be you. (laughs) I had an adjuster one time come onto the lot and ask to speak Hey, honey, can I speak with your husband? It's like, oh, sweetheart, you need to vacate. Oh, (laughs) no. That was kind of fun. But you know what? I have never, ever run across a more integrous group than technicians. Mm -hmm. These guys want to fix vehicles. They want to earn money. They, They know when they work hard, they can make good money. They want to show up and they want to be they want to be recognized for what they do. And I, I was, I have never, ever been insulted as a female or been mistreated in any way, shape or form, but any technician I've ever worked with, they're just, you know, you just got to treat people well. That's not to say I've heard some horror stories myself from females in the industry. And honestly, you allow, you know, you, you allow yourself to be treated in a way that you get treated. And perhaps my personality doesn't, allow for that kind of stuff? I don't know. I don't know, but I do know there's issues out there and we can be better as an industry in that regard as it relates to equality and how we treat treat women in the industry. Could not agree more. And I going back to how candid you were when you first meet with a team and stating your purpose, right? My purpose is to be here to make this place more money, which will allow you guys to make more money and us to offer those benefits that we want to offer you. And the the more profitable we are, the, the healthier of a company we are and not hiding around that. You know, I think early in my career, maybe that was one of one of the things that I wish I would have improved too. Another learning opportunity was, you know, being more candid and clear about that. It's okay for us to make money. We need it to be able to support you and be able to provide you opportunities down the road that maybe aren't here today. And the fact that you went in and just cleared the air right off the bat, I think that gives you a really nice foundation to be able to build off of from there on out. Well, they didn't, they didn't know that that was truth just because I said it didn't make it so, but you know, I I do want to make a clarification. I was there to make them money, not the business. I was there to make them money. Everybody Mm. else is profitable when the technicians are profitable. That's just how business works. That's That's how GP works. Right. And I, I did some fun stuff, right? One of the things that we had issues were with was guys wearing their PPE. Right. I, when I first walked in, nobody wore protective glasses and I'm a safety freak. I've, so, I've seen too many horrible, horrible things. And, you know, at, at the start, I'd walk out with a, a fistful of 20s and whoever was wearing their glasses got a $20 bill. And it, 
it got to the point where I would walk out and everybody would be struggling to get their glasses on. But then it just became something everybody did, right? And it became something fun. As it relates to money, if some if a technician found something that I had missed on the estimate, I gave them the the revenue that was generated from that missed operation. If the painter could find something that I missed, I gave him the revenue from that. So that was a pretty big deal. And if anybody found something that we could add onto as an additional repair for the customer pay portion of it, they got half the revenue generated by that piece, right? And that sounds like I'm giving money away for free, but everybody started, everybody was focused on repairing the vehicle, right? What are we missing? What can we charge for? You missed the, you know, the corrosion protection on the pinch weld clamp marks, right? And now when everybody's focused on them making more money, who makes more money? Well, the business does. And I didn't do anything. We just did what we were supposed to do at the, at the beginning and recognized people for the effort that they put in to repair vehicles. As a person writing an estimate, how can you catch everything and be fast? Do you know how long it takes to write an estimate these days? I couldn't, I couldn't do it, I bet. I haven't written an estimate in five years and everything's changed right? I know I would miss stuff. Well, don't you want your team who has to do the work and who gets remunerated on the, the numbers on that estimate? Don't you want them to participate in it as well? Or do you just want them to snicker at the back of the, the chick up front who doesn't know how to write an estimate? Right? <laughs> what are we talking so, on here, folks? Well, and I think one of the, the really cool takes that you had and I took away from a, a conversation that we had previously was one of the biggest complaints I hear from collision shops is the relationship with insurance companies and and really the the mindset that uh, we can't make money on that. Like it, it's, it's, it's a hard business. And you had a completely different take on it. And it was one that I thought was interesting. So can you talk to me a, a little bit about the relationship of body shops as it, as it, as it relates to the insurance business? Well, whether you're a DRP shop or not a DRP shop, right? That's a, that's a mindset and a business goal either way. And you can be profitable either way. The shops that I worked in just happened to be DRP shops and I got paid for doing absolutely everything I needed to do on the vehicle. That said, it was simple, but not easy, right? Because you, it was a lot of work to document, even now going through repair procedures, you know, and, and these advanced technologies on these vehicles, you got to start digging back. Well, okay, to remove the bumper on this, it's got sensors on it. So you got to go back and what's, what's it take? How, how long does it take to remove those sensors? And now you've got mill thickness issues on, you know, painting around those bumpers and, and things like that. And those are all, those are all things that can be added to the estimate, right? That at the end, the insurance company says, well, we don't pay for that. And the problem with that argument is our, the insurance company is required by law to pay for everything that's required to be done on a vehicle. Well, if we don't document that we did it, how can they pay for it? And, and they, they use the, the big you know, baseball bat to beat us collectively over the head. Where we don't, And we kind of get gun shy after a while. Yeah. But I, I never used aftermarket parts when a customer said they didn't want aftermarket parts. I just documented because everyone knows any aftermarket part that you can find for a vehicle looks different yeah. than in the OE part. 
I'm not saying one is better than the other or are landing on one side or the other, but if a customer said no, no aftermarket parts, I went through the process to make sure that they didn't have to have aftermarket parts, but it's a lot of work. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And, and, you know, the fear of having work taken away because you don't play by the rules is very real and it's happened to a lot of shops. And so I don't minimize that by any stretch, but the, it can be done. And there's shops out there who do it every day. There's shops who aren't DRP, who, who charge for every operation. I worked at one shop where, you know, they actually have the technicians bring in the used tube of, of seam sealer so that that can be put on the estimate. Right. And it's taken a picture of, they document it and away they go and they get paid for it. It's a lot of work. And I think as we kind of conclude this, this episode, I think it all lends itself to great leadership. And, and I think even having maybe a different, a different thought process or a different way of just rather than saying, ah, the man's trying to beat me down. You know, it's more of, okay, how do we, they're going to try and beat us down. How do we combat that? How do we, how do we get around that? Right. Right. And I was always far more dedicated to winning than, than they were to fighting. And, and that's not to say that, you know, that there wasn't give and take in some ways, but you know, there, I would stay awake at night worrying about whether, oh gosh, you know, we forgot to check the, we didn't take the trim off the door to check that it wasn't, you know, water damage, that LKQ door that we put on because you know, our kids are getting back into these vehicles and that's why we do what we do, right? We're all here to make sure that the people who get back in the vehicles we repair are safe. And we all need to do our roles. The technicians need to do their thing, but our leadership needs to, to amp up as well, right? And we don't need to know absolutely everything. There's somebody out there who does, which is why mentorship is such a cool thing. You know, there every every leader that I've spoken with, the people in our industry have who've gotten to the very top of where they wanted to go in the industry had somebody telling them, hey, look, that's not right. You're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. Do this, right? They had somebody guiding them. I've got two mentors, both of whom are really strong-willed individuals who aren't afraid to tell me, hey, look, you are backwards. You got your head on backwards. You, you can't do that this way. Do it this way and see what happens, right? So mentorship starts right up at the top, and, and it's much easier to build a mentorship and apprenticeship program in a shop when you're already, as a leader, taking guidance from somebody else who's been there, done that. And for those technicians that are listening, please be open to this. I think for the health of our industry, for the health of your own shops, take it seriously. And and truly, you know, I think it takes special people to be true mentors. And and those of you that are listening that are good mentors, thank you. But then having that that mindset to want to grow people, we talk about legacies what better way to leave a legacy than than how many people are following you and and how many you know i we we talk about leadership and leadership doesn't just have to be in the front office that's that's in the shop and mentors leading the way you're setting the stage for the next generation of people that that will help you out and and i think those that embrace that 
are invaluable in this business. I agree. And, you know, the whole goal to leadership, the main biggest goal in leadership is to create more leaders, not to create followers. It's to, it's to lift people up. It's wherever you are, you're a step ahead of someplace else. Just reach back and bring them with you. That's it. So that they can too be great for whoever they need to be great for. And it feels better. It just feels better to be collaborative, especially in our industry where it is so isolation, isolating at times. Right. It, it really is. It really is. And I, I've, I've so much enjoyed this conversation. I think we could talk for another four hours today easily. Unfortunately, we, we ended an hour, but this is incredible. And I think, I think everything that you bring is sometimes through a different lens than most. And I think that's a, that's the highest compliment I could give to somebody is that you're looking at it differently in so many different ways. And, and just a, a true pleasure to have you on today because this was a lot of fun to, to talk through some some pretty important stuff. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share my tiny little piece, right? Like I said, I, I don't know cars. I don't know how to fix cars, right? But I can sure support the people who do. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with someone who's willing to, to hear a different perspective. And everybody out there has a different perspective, right? It's, I, I have one long, little tiny piece of the territory, my little map, and everybody has their own piece of the map. And if we listen to their piece, you know, allow people to bring what they know, they've got a different perspective than all of us. And, and boy, what could we build if we just heard from everyone? I, I can't wait to keep doing that. Let, let's keep, <laughs> keep, keep the voices going because I think the more we talk about it, the more we get smart people in the same room and, and chatting through this stuff, the better our industry is going to be as a whole. So genuinely appreciate you joining us and look forward to the next time. Me as well. Thanks so much, Jake.